And Peter is addressing multiple churches of whom he is given the title Israel, although likely they are a mix of Gentiles and Jews. Israel meaning that they are God's chosen people, but they are exiled. They are not living in the promised land uh, yet. They are waiting for the promised land. And in the midst of not living in the promised land, they are going to face suffering and trial, uh, and particularly because of their stance on righteousness. So although Peter touches on suffering many, many times in his letter, he is focusing in on the suffering we face because we stand upon the righteousness of Christ. One writer said, when, uh, which I addressed in the early, we must ask what is wrong with our life and witness if the world does not bother to persecute us. We must ponder what is wrong with our life and witness if the world does not bother to persecute us. It is a great question and it's the question that one Peter assumes. You are going to be persecuted. You are going to be hated. You are going to be despised. People will malign you because you do not join them in their acts of unrighteousness. And that's what we are going to see once again in Peter's writing. The gospel, suffering, and how the gospel helps us rejoice in suffering. So let's hear Peter's repetition as he builds weight upon what we should, should, should hear and live by. 1 Peter 4, 12 to 19. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted, uh, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the Spirit of glory and of God's great, uh, God, and of God rests on you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler. If anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray and ask him for guidance. Holy Father, what a blessing it is to call you Father. May we never take it for granted. May we treasure your instruction. And as we come to your instruction this morning, Lord, as we ponder suffering, ponder the gospel, think of Christ's suffering and Christ's glory, Lord, will you illuminate your word for us? Will it become real to us? Will we tremble at the fearful parts? And would we be encouraged by your uplifting? 
Would your tender word of beloved be sweet to our ears and the warning of judgment cause us, cause us to examine our life? Father, I pray that in all this we will entrust ourselves to you, our Creator and King, and may you carry us through to glory. And may others see how we endure, that your name may be glorified. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we just sung a song that I would say most churches probably don't want to sing. Uh, A song that actually attributes all suffering to God. Though you slay me, though you ruin me. This all comes from Job, uh, a book many of us will know pretty well. Job 1.21 says, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. There was a song written about this verse, and it was sung for many decades. Uh, It should never be sung again. It needs a new melody. But it is a great verse that we must ponder, because the true Christian must have a profound understanding of the character of God and a profound trust in His goodness. And this is Job. It wasn't simple. It wasn't a simple knowledge of God that Job had. He didn't have a surface area, a surface knowledge of God. He had a deep knowledge of God. And the depth of his knowledge was that in all things, he was a receiver and God was the giver. And he was an undeserved receiver. He didn't earn anything. It was given to him freely. Job was a hard worker. He was a man who had uh, many, many different areas of interest, many different industries of work. He wasn't just a a cattle farmer. He had camels and sheep and goats. He had it all. He had a lot of things going on. So this this Job character was a hard-working man. Yet even that didn't breed entitlement. He didn't say, God, you've taken away all that I have worked for. He said... I came with nothing, I will leave with nothing. The Lord has given me everything, including the strength and discipline and courage to do the work that I have done. Blessed be the name of the Lord, both in the giving and in the taking away. We see this profound knowledge of God goes even further later on in Job uh, in 13.15 where it says, Though you slay me, or though he slay me, I will hope in him, yet I will argue my ways to his face. Interesting verse. First of all, it says, God, you are the one who's slaying me. You are the one that has taken all this away from me. But I will hope in you because I know that you are good. Even in the midst of hoping in you, I will put my ways before you. Who do we see do this? David. In his Psalm, Psalm 13. Psalm 39. uh, Psalm 18. He puts... His righteousness before God. There is a profound relationship that the writers of the Old Testament have with their God. They know the depth of His character. They know they can attribute all things to His hand. Yet at the same time, that encourages them to trust in Him. We're going to talk about fiery trials. 
Peter is addressing the church who is seriously in need of some encouragement as it's going to face many fiery trials in the next four years. From 66 to 70 AD, everyone that associated with the Jewish faith, including Christians, were going to suffer at the hands of multiple emperors. And they were going to suffer because they stood upon a righteousness that the world despised. When it comes, will we blame God or bless His name? Matthew Henry wrote, if the, soul be, if the soul be not well kept, suffering and persecution will drive people to apostasy. If the soul be not well kept, the suffering and persecution will drive people to apostasy. That is to renounce the things of God or to soften the things of God. We are seeing this greatly today as universalism is on the rise. People that stand upon the Scriptures and say, it doesn't matter, God is not going to judge. He is, uh, he is a loving that is not defined in Scripture, but their own definition of loving. So Matthew Henry says it's about the soul being kept in the character of God, like Job or David in the Psalms. So that when the fiery trials come to test our faith, as we see in 1 Peter, 1, uh, in 1 Peter chapter 1, that the whole point of suffering is to test the faith that He has given us, to prove that it is real, to prove that it is genuine. Will our soul be kept in the teachings of our Lord and His goodness, or will we apostate? Will we renounce it, change it to be a universalist or change the teachings of Christ's righteousness claiming things that are vile are righteous? Well, that's what Peter's aim, aiming to, doing, to do for us, to give us a mind like Job, to give us a soul like David, to keep our soul so that we will not apostate or become apostate become apostates when, when we face trials and suffering. Verse 12 says, Beloved, do not be surprised at fiery trials when they come upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. The first word I want to focus on is that word beloved. The Apostle Peter has deliberately opened this section with this beautiful phrase, Beloved. Where, where we see beloved most of all is in the book Song of Songs, which is a beautiful relationship between a man and a woman representing uh, both marriage and the goodness of marriage, but also Christ and His church. The church of God is Christ's beloved. Peter, John, and Paul all were willing to call the church beloved. They loved the church dearly. Paul writing to the Corinthians and the Corinthians were in vile and full of sin, he dearly loved the church and would refer to them as beloved. The first challenge that we have with, with all the church's vileness, with the times that people in the church hurt you, with the times where you disagree with the way the leadership's going, do you still think the church is beloved? There's a great challenge for us to say, we must love the church in the same way Christ loves the church. And guess what? Christ knows about the sins in the church. Clearly. Very evidently. 
that he went to claim her on the cross by dying. And if Christ can say, I see the filth, I see the sin, and I'm going to die for it and still love her, as a believer in Christ and someone who claims to love Christ, we have no reason to not love the church. We have no reason at all to reject our love for the church, no matter how bad it gets, no matter if everyone apostates. We must say, she is Christ's beloved. This address comes with compassion and exhortation. He wants the church, the whole body of Christ, to feel uh, loved and cared for, to know their position before God. As Peter says, beloved to them, they are hearing from God Himself as the, inspire, the one who inspires all scripture, scripture. He wants them to know that these trials that they are facing comes from the one who calls them beloved. There's all sorts of trials we'll face in our life. Fiery trials. Uh, in 1 Peter 1, it says various trials. The emphasis on the word fiery is that they're going to hurt. It's going to burn. Like the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego going into the fiery furnace. Suffering like that. Burning. It may be the loss of wealth, like Job. The loss of children, loss of health, the end, the end of the ability to work. We look at Job who was left with nothing, left in a gutter, scraping his wounds with a piece of pottery and says, blessed be the name of the Lord. What we must realize is that while sin remains, this world is in error. And painful suffering is not just likely, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. And in the midst of that suffering that is going to happen for us, God is saying, I'm there, I've ordained this, it's doing something. It's testing your faith and proving it to be genuine. 1 Peter 1, 7 so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus. Your suffering today is going to result in praise and glory and honor when Christ comes. So what you hate right now is going to be worship in the end. What you don't want to experience today is going to be praise in the end. Because you'll realize that God has delivered you through it. He's tested the genuineness of your faith and you have been presented in something far better. Far better. Not even worth comparing, Paul says in Corinthians. That the glory that awaits us isn't worth comparing to the momentary suffering that we experience today. Twice now, Peter has said that suffering is there to test us. Is your faith real? Is it anchored in Christ and His Word? That's the question that suffering will reveal. That's what we'll find out as your life goes on. I don't want to diminish, as I have done before 
sickness, death, and these other areas of suffering, but I do want to remain focused on our context. Peter is heavily talking about suffering at the hands of sinners, suffering at the hands of those who hate Christ, suffering because we choose to stand upon the Word of God and will not shift to the standards and beliefs of this world. He's speaking of things like mocking, slander, a whipping, loss of job for the sake of Christ, loss of family for the sake of Christ. He's listening to a guy, a Christian man in the States, who's going to war pretty much against the state of Texas because his wife wants to transition his daughter, but he's having none of it. And he stood in the court and they said, the, the, the judge said to him, if you speak out in any way against, against these, these things that we're, we're against trans, uh, the transition, you will be arrested. And he said, good, go for it. Arrest me now. He's been publicly preaching against it in all social media, on all media, uh, 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 on all media platforms, and still hasn't been arrested. Because he stands for Christ and Christ's righteousness. This is what we're talking about. These are the fiery trials that we are going to face. As I've reminded us before, throughout every age, throughout every time, every generation, there has been a battle the church needs to fight as it grows in maturity. We're not fighting over the Trinity. We're not fighting over the deity of Christ. We're fighting over the family, God's creation mandate. The world is fighting against what God ordained in Genesis 1 and 2. And that is our foundation for what we should believe today. In our time, what Peter is wanting for us to stand upon is family and the life that family has for this world. That is the battle that we have to fight today. That is where we will face fiery trials when we stand upon the righteousness of God and His design for the household. We see, we see Peter use multiple examples of these men who have stood upon the Word of God throughout history. In chapter 1, he uses the prophets. The prophets were those who testified about Christ's death and resurrection. Later, he uses Noah. That Noah was a man who spoke in a uh, sinful age and he spoke the righteousness of God. And we see in 2 Peter 2, Lot and Noah, who were heralds of righteousness, it says. They were heralds of righteousness. This is what I want to challenge a bit in our thinking. We talk a lot about what it means to share our faith with someone. I would struggle to see that phrase in Scripture. Happy to be challenged upon that. We're not to share our faith, who we have faith in. We are to tell people about Christ and His teachings. In, we, in the Great Commission, we see it says, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Now, can I take you back to the old translation of Matthew 28? Matthew 28 in the KJV says, Go ye, therefore, teach all nations. Teach all nations. Now, if you know much about the Greek language, it's not easy to discern which one's right. Uh, But we should hold them both and learn from them both. That we are making individual disciples of the nations, but we are also here to be heralds of righteousness. To not just share the faith that I have in Christ, but to say, 
Jesus is King. Because what comes before the Great Commission? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go ye therefore, or go therefore. The authority is Christ's. Christ is ruling and reigning today in your workplace, in your neighborhood, or wherever you end up. And these people need to know that Christ is reigning. And we are not just to say, hey, I have faith in Christ, because most people are just going to go, that's good for you, don't push it on me. You're going to find that when you say, I have faith in Christ, who is King, and we should all be submitting to His righteousness, they are then going to throw fiery trials at you. You will be mocked, slandered, called a fundamentalist, told the Bible isn't relevant. You may lose your job for me preaching this very message, which we saw last year. Not you preaching it, but me preaching it. Will you like me then? You may be called a bigot. You may be hated by family, which Jesus warns us of. You may be called, a ho- you may be called homophobic, transphobic. Will you rejoice in Christ when this is the case? No matter what you try to do to pacify the world, if you don't meet their standard, you are going to be homophobic in their eyes. We can say, no, we love people, but they will not accept it until you submit fully to their standard of righteousness, which we who are in Christ say, no, I am a herald of righteousness as Noah was a herald of righteousness in his day or Lot in his time in Sodom, heralds of righteousness. We're telling people, obey the king. He has all rule and authority today. Obey the king because he's coming again. And that is where we'll see fiery trials come. In verse 14, it says... If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. We need to be careful not to be claiming that every insult we receive is because we're in Christ. Oh, they just don't like me because I'm a Christian. We are being insulted because we stand upon the truth of God's Word. That's why they insult us. To be insulted for the name of Christ means that we will not give an inch. We will not move to the right or to the left. We won't be swayed, as Ephesians 4 tells us, by the waved and winds of teachings of this world. We will be active heralds of righteousness, not passives. Passive. And we know that the Holy Spirit will strengthen us to stand up. This is what Peter has been doing all along. He wants us to be strengthened. He wants us to have a backbone. He wants us to say, you have the truth, church. You have the truth. Make them apologize. They can be apologetic to us. We have the absolute truth. Suffer for the name of Christ because you stand with Christ not just because people don't like you because you are a sinner, which is what verse 15 tells us or warns us of. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a a, a thief or an evildoer 
or as a meddler. This isn't an exhaustive list. You could add anything to this list. But Peter is just wanting to make a, a, a contrast between the person who's insulted for Christ and the person who is insulted because they're a, they're a sinner. The person yelling at you in the car because you cut them off is not insulting you because of Christ. They're insulting you because you were selfish and tried to squeeze in. The pastor who's practicing homosexuality and says, oh, everyone's just slandering me because I'm a Christian. I'm in Christ. No, you're being slandered because you're a sinner and you're living in sin. We must be clear to discern what is insulting for Christ, for Christ's name, and what is just our sin that's causing people to hate us. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, verse 16, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. The greatest accusation you're going to hear from the devil, you remember the, the devil is an accuser, and he's very crafty. We know this from the garden. He's not going to tell you straight out that you did well by standing up for the word of God. He's going to, to accuse you of sin. He wants you to feel small. He wants you to feel belittled. He wants you to feel like you've done the wrong thing and he will accuse you of that. Here's one of the greatest lies of Satan in our day. Is it loving? Was that loving? How many times have we heard that over the last few years? Is that loving? Was it loving when Herod was referred to by Jesus as a dead dog? Loving to call the Pharisees whitewashed tombs, meaning that on the outside you look beautiful, but on the inside you're a rotten corpse. Satan's best lie today is this attitude that the only way to be loving is to be passive and flatter. Sure, you can be a real tool about bringing truth. You can say it in, in all the wrong ways. You can say it in, in anger or frustration. But at least we said the truth at the moment. Because the reality is there's not much truth being said. There's a lot of flattery being said. There's a lot of, I'll talk to the person behind your back, but not to you. And that's the church at the moment. We not only want to flatter people, but we love to be flattered. We want to be loved by the world. We actually want the world to flatter us and to say, oh, we accept you as you are. But they'll only accept us if we bend on everything that God stands for. If you give them an inch... They will take a mile, as the old saying goes. If you just say, will we accept practicing homosexuals in our church? They will accept you to marry them as well. We need to be clear and stand on the truth of God's word. 
without any move or bend at all. And we shouldn't be ashamed for it. We shouldn't be ashamed for it. We need to be like the Christian father in Texas who's standing up publicly and saying, no, I will not let my daughter, uh, my son be transitioned. We need to be like Jeff Durbin who's going to Senate meetings and standing against the abortion mills and had a huge influence in the Roe vs. Wade turnover. We need to be like the guys and the Puritans who came and sat in the midst of persecution, travelled miles to write confessions and statements of faith. We need to be like John the Baptist, the Apostle Paul, the prophets of old, Moses, Joseph, the great cloud of witnesses that surrounds us. And of course we need to be like Jesus, most of all who knew how to be discerning between the people he would talk to. The tender touch of talking to the Samaritan woman, offering her the living water, but revealing her sin. Yet the harshness in which he spoke to the self-righteous Pharisees. There is a difference between a pastor who's in outward sin and practicing homosexuality and teaching others to do the same and the way you would talk to that person and just someone in the congregation who's suffering with this temptation in their life that we can offer them grace and peace and the words beloved that Peter uses and that's what we see this passage turn into see Peter has been addressing the whole flock everyone he doesn't know who is a Christian there He doesn't know who's genuinely born again. He's referring to all of them as a beloved. But here, in 17 and 18, there is a great warning for the church. Peter's letter is mostly encouragement. And then there's these few moments where he wants us to question and examine our salvation. For it is time for the judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Peter started tender tender with beloved. He implied here that everyone he was addressing was a Christian, born again, encouraging encouraging them in their trials and their suffering. Uh, Paul and and John write in similar ways, referring to the whole church as as beloved. Everyone that was reading that letter would have been referred to as a beloved. But what they also articulate is that there's only one way that we know who are genuinely saved, who have genuine born-again salvation, and it's those who endure to the end. That's essentially the only way. We can know people by their fruit, but then in the next breath Jesus says, but people are crafty, they'll dress up like sheep. Really, they're wolves. Jesus tells us that there will be tares and wheat growing together, and goats and sheep mingling together in the church. It's going to be hard to tell. There'll be some that deceive us all the way to the very end. But that's all right, Jesus says, or Peter here says, judgment begins with the household of God. We see throughout the Old Testament in Isaiah 10, 12, Jeremiah 25, 20, 29, Ezekiel 9, 6, The judgment begins with God's people and then He brings calamity and judgment upon the rest of the nations. 
He, he refines his people because he cares for his people. So in the midst of testing, the fiery trials that are going to come upon us as a collective, maybe individually and, and, and all of us at times, we're going to find that some will fall away. And John will say they are not of us. They were not with us. If they were with us, they would have remained with us. Paul would say they should have endured to the end. What is it really revealing? Well, Jesus says that there are branches in me that will be cut off and thrown into the fire in John 15. There are those who will be cut away, who were never born again, and the testing of their faith will prove that their, that their faith was dis, disgenuine. This is one of those verses that should genuinely terrify us. Along with Matthew 7, 21 to 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of, will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? Then I'll declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Throughout history, the church has gone through many times of refining and reformations. Many times of the people of God had to come back to the word of God and say, we will not move to the right or to the left. In this age, in this time, it feels like there's a people coming back to the word of God again and saying, what does the word of God instruct us for life in all areas of life? How do I do the will of God in my waking and in my sleeping, in my eating and in my leisure, in my work and in my family, in my singleness and in whatever else you can imagine the law, word of God speaks to? But there's still going to be those among us that will deceive us to the end. Our job isn't to weed them out. Well, our job is partly that. But our job isn't to guess who they are. I love what C.S. Lewis said. It's not our job to decide who's a Christian and who's not. Of course, we could say that's a bad Christian and that's a good Christian. We've got that. In the Word of God, it tells us very clearly what a good Christian looks like. They bear fruit in their life. But we can also tell what a bad Christian looks like. If their sin is public and, and, and bringing shame on, on, the, on the flock, then we have processes for dealing with that through church discipline. But maybe their sin's internal and we just never really notice it. Well, there's nothing we can really do about that but wait. Wait until God comes and Jesus says, I never knew you. So the testing of faith is both encouraging and a call to be spurred on to be pushed on all the more in our faith paul uh, peter is calling us to choose in our life the hard option to literally choose suffering to say i've got an easy road and i've got a hard road and i'm going to go down the hard road i'm going to suffer fiery trials as a choice one of the characteristics of our culture is that we love comfort. None more than Australia. You can, you can look at all those secular studies if you'd like, but Australia is one of the most comfortable places on earth. We're obsessed with it. 
whether you realize it or not, because you grew up in this culture, you will make decisions according to the desire to be comfortable. So we need to weigh up and count the cost of what it means to deny ourselves comfort in order to take on hardship. Which means there's going to come times in our life where we're not going to have the hard conversation in our household. We may choose not to have a marriage where we rebuke one another because it's easier just to, to not deal with those things. We may choose in the church to just flatter one another because it's easier to just not confront sin and have confrontation and have to repent and have to apply the gospel. It's just easier to, do, to not do that. We may choose, because of our culture, that the, the tenth time our kid has done the exact same thing uh, not to discipline them because it's easier just to let it slide this one time. We literally, as Christians in our culture here in Australia, have to choose to suffer consciously. We have to choose hardship. Choose to endure pain for the sake of our faith being tested. That may be having the hard conversation and maybe walking out of the lunch shed when the conversation turns vile. And maybe not going to a wedding because it's not under biblical standards. And maybe separating yourself out from family because they choose to stand against God's values yet hold to Christian status. Peter then recites from Proverbs 11.31, if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? If the righteous is scarcely saved, is, is pretty confronting. To, to say that our, our salvation was, was scarce is almost a contradiction of what we read in the New Testament. But what it's saying is, of your ability, there is no possible way of your salvation. We are scarcely saved because only one person could accomplish it. The Lord Jesus Christ, the second member of the Trinity. Only through God's wisdom and intelligence could He bring about salvation for us. Nothing we had, our wisdom, intelligence, skill, could bring us to the place of being righteous. So we see God saying, your salvation is in my hands. So what I'm really testing, and we saw this back in 1 Peter 1, what I'm really testing is my own work. Isn't that comforting? God is not only going to test you, He's going to test His work of faith, His power to make you born again, and He's going to give you what you need to be sustained to prove that His work is genuine. So Peter has started with encouragement for all believers that are there, everyone that's present in the church. He's warned some to test themselves, to choose hardship because just maybe your faith isn't real. But God is going to judge the household of God first and find those who disobey the word, the gospel of God. And then he finishes with encouragement, verse 19. 
Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their soul to a faithful creator while doing good. This is what we need to do. This is the application. Verse 19 is there for us to put into action. When you suffer, know that it's at the hand of God and He is good. Know that His suffering is at the hand of God. We saw this last week in Psalm 19. It said, the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The precepts, those things that God ordains, His decrees, what He sends forth in our world, are right. And because they're right, they rejoice our heart. God knows what He's doing, and everything comes from His hand, and we can trust Him. Take great comfort and hope that whatever comes, He will give you the strength to endure it. Though He slay you, though He ruin you, still praise Him. Because it's doing something in you. And lastly, it's our duty of Christians in all their distress to look more to the keeping of our soul than to the preserving of our life. It's our duty as Christians in all our distresses to look more to the keeping of our soul than the preserving of our life. It is our job to govern our thoughts, to choose to suffer in order to be refined by fire so that our faith is proved genuine and that our bodies do not perish in judgment. We want to choose good and right suffering. Because it's proving something in us. It's proving that we'll last. And if we last, we reach glory. Glory that is not able to be compared to the sufferings that we will have experienced in this life. It's a great hope. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that at Your hand, the hand of a good and faithful God who knows all and knows the end from the beginning, from that hand, You send forth suffering. So Lord, though You slay us, whether it be through sickness or slander, whether it be through the loss of all things, or through the public humiliation of this world, may we, Lord, stand firm to the very end. May we rejoice in Christ. May we finish the race and complete the task that you have given us. May we herald righteousness. pray this in Jesus' name.